You can't see Jesus as a saviour until you acknowledge your sin. If you don't think you have any sin, you have no need for a saviour. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part eight of Christ, the center of all history. Pastor Paul Twiss is presently leading a study of the Gospel of Matthew. His text for today is chapter two, verses 16 through 18. Chapter two, where Pastor is teaching today, is the final part of Matthew's prologue to his Gospel, which provides background into Jesus' genealogy and place of birth as prophesied. This child's life was threatened by an evil ruler, Herod, who sought and failed to avert this coming of a new covenant Christ, which Christians today enjoy through the death and resurrection of Jesus as the eternal sacrifice for our sins. Henceforth, people would have a desire in their hearts toward him, the awareness of personal sin, and the need for the repentance that both Jesus and John the Baptist had preached. Today's teaching has a perfect subtitle, Weep no more, a new covenant has come. Here's part eight in our current series. Many years ago, and it it does seem like a lifetime ago now, we lived in Scotland in the city of Glasgow. We moved there when we had just had our first baby. She was six weeks old, and the Navy called me and said, you're sailing in two days, move. So I packed my bag and I went, and Laura moved our life up to Glasgow with a newborn baby in her arms. And now you get an impression of just what a strong woman my wife is. I came back from the submarine. I didn't know where we lived. (laughs) I didn't have a cell phone, and I was driving around Glasgow about one in the morning trying to find some supposed house that was now mine. We spent the next three years in that city, and if you go to visit Glasgow, what you'll notice is what a strong Christian heritage it has. It's true of many cities in the UK, of course, If you walk around Glasgow, there are lots of evidences of its Christian heritage. One evidence that you would have found if you had visited some time ago is the slogan that was adopted by the city. You'd have to go there some time ago, and you would have heard people say, let Glasgow flourish by the preaching of thy word and the praising of thy name. That was the slogan of the city. And it was written everywhere, let Glasgow flourish by the preaching of thy word and by the praising of thy name. If you go today and you ask anyone, what's the slogan of this city? They would say, let Glasgow flourish. That's it. Some time ago now, somebody thought it would be wise to shorten down that slogan. Because we don't want anything to do with the preaching of God's word or the praising of his name. So simply let Glasgow flourish. And what people don't understand is no city would ever flourish without a true acknowledgement of God. Our state is no better than Matthew's and is no better than Jeremiah's. And what that does is it, it sets up a very dark backdrop for us to consider the wonderful, glorious truth that then arises 
from this quotation, namely that Jesus is bringing a new covenant. You see, you have to have that backdrop, that dark backdrop, in order to understand the wonderful truths of the new covenant, in order to to appreciate them and see that they're needed. You can't see Jesus as a savior until you acknowledge your sin. If you don't think you have any sin, you have no need for a savior. And one of the reasons Jeremiah chapter after chapter gives us all of this sin and judgment is so that when you get to chapter 31, the glory of the new covenant shines. And so this now is the second reason that he makes this quotation. And note, you have to understand something more is intended than a simple historical correspondence. He is not saying the weeping in Bethlehem sounded like the weeping in Israel, and that's the sum total of what I mean by the scriptures being fulfilled. He has to mean more than that, simply because he uses, in verse 17, fulfillment language. That tells us there is something about the original text that was reaching forward beyond the weeping of the exiles. The original text, in some way, is anticipating something yet future, that Matthew says finds its resting point in the arrival of Jesus. So what is that something? As we've been working through all of these Old Testament texts, one thing I've tried to labor is that you can't understand them unless you're willing to go back to the original context and spend some time there. It's always the case that the New Testament author is pulling on more than simply the text quoted. He's always pulling on a theological context, and so you need to be at home with it to know the nature of the fulfillment. So turn back with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. I want to point out a few things to you now so that we can better understand how this weeping in Matthew's day was in some way a fulfillment of the words spoken by Jeremiah. The quotation itself is verse 15 and only verse 15. A voice heard in Ramah, Lamentation, bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. But paying attention to the broader theological context, look just at the next verse. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping. Keep your eyes from tears. Because there's a reward. There is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. They shall come back from the land of their enemy. There is hope for your future. You see how when you go back to the original context and you read just one verse beyond the quotation, immediately the landscape starts to change. And you realize that Matthew saying, now these words have been fulfilled, are fulfillments not ultimately of judgment. Immediately judgment. Ultimately, hope. When Matthew quotes from Jeremiah in chapter 2, what he intends for us to see is immediate judgment, immediate bad news, but ultimately hope. We know that the hope to which Jeremiah is referring is not found in the physical return from the land. We've spoken about that already this morning. Their physical return from Babylon to their land didn't change anything about their heart. So that's not the final resting place of these words. But if you look down towards the end of the chapter, 
we find the theological truths that come with their return. Verse 31, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. There is the theological good news. There is a new covenant on the way, says Jeremiah. The ultimate hope of the exiles is not found in their immediate return to the land, but is found one day when God instills in them new hearts as part of a new covenant. He says it's not like the covenant I made with their fathers, referring to the Mosaic covenant. It's not like that covenant. That covenant was good for them. The covenant hadn't failed. They had failed. That covenant was good for them in that God had given them a law by which they were to flourish in their relationship with him. He had written that law on tablets of stone for them to observe. But Jeremiah says throughout his book, you had written on your heart your sin. He's playing with the imagery of the Mosaic covenant there. He says, God gave you the good law for you on tablets of stone. But with an instrument of iron, you etched into your heart the reality of your sin. So that covenant hadn't done what it was intended to do. So it's not like that covenant, Jeremiah says. This new covenant is one that will be affected within your hearts. The law will not be on tablets of stone, says Jeremiah. The new covenant reality is that it will be in your hearts. He goes on to say, God will be your God. You will be his people, speaking about relational realities. God had always desired that you would be his people. He had saved you from Egypt and brought you into the land, but you had worshipped other things. But when the new covenant comes, he will be your God. Meaning you will have a desire in your heart towards him in a way that you have not had thus far. And all of this is effected, last verse 34, because your sins will be forgiven. Look at that last sentence. For you have got to pay attention to the small words in your Bible. Because so often they're the means by which the argument is made. And if you gloss over them, you lose the logical relationship. All of these wonderful truths about a new heart inclined towards God and towards his law are only made possible for because your sins have been dealt with. And now that your sins have been dealt with, a new relationship is forged between you and your God. And though Jeremiah doesn't speak here, in an overt manner about Jesus Christ, we understand from the broader theological context that the way in which the sins are forgiven is by virtue of the death of Jesus Christ. That is what Matthew is speaking of when he says the weeping in Bethlehem has found a resting point. He is announcing in a very subtle manner that Jesus is the bringer of this new covenant. He's heralding yet another facet to Jesus' ministry. Think in just two chapters, all that we've taken in about Christ. So much that Matthew is able to accomplish in two chapters of his gospel, showcasing the glory of Christ. 
And as he comes towards the end of his prologue, he finds another thing to bring to us. And he says, one more thing you should know about this man. He is the bringer of the new covenant. And for that reason, you worship him. Now, again, this would have been incredibly meaningful for any Jew truly tracking with the redemptive plan of God as it was given in the Old Testament scriptures. For you and I today, fast forward 2,000 years from Matthew's writing, I want you to consider just how wonderful the new covenant is for us. These words in Jeremiah were spoken for the benefit of Israel, the Old Testament people of God, and they will come to pass for them. They have not come to pass yet for the nation of Israel. But one day, as Zechariah prophecies, they will look on him who they have pierced and they will acknowledge their king. And then there will be a salvation for the Jewish people. One of the wonders of the gospel is that the Gentiles enjoy new covenant realities today. These words were spoken originally for Israel. He doesn't mention here the Gentiles. Then you get to Matthew's gospel and he announces Jesus is the bringer of the new covenant. And as you trace with New Testament theology, you understand that God in his wisdom allows Gentiles to partake of the new covenant now. So think with me just by way of application about the peculiar and the wonderful nature of the new covenant for us. As we think now about our belonging to a new covenant, by way of application, ponder the peculiar and wonderful nature of the new covenant for us. It's peculiar because the second that you're brought into the new covenant, you start behaving in a way that is very strange to the world that is watching. When you get brought into the new covenant, God gives you a real desire to honor him. He does heart surgery on you so that you have a real, genuine desire to read his word. These are new covenant realities and they are utterly foreign to the world. So that on a Monday morning, when your work colleagues say, what did you do this weekend? You're not ashamed to say, I went to church to worship God. And you feel the awkwardness in the room immediately and they 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 maybe are brave enough to say so what do you do at church you say well we sing you sing a song we sing five or six actually and i really enjoy it what else do you do well for about an hour we read the bible and someone teaches us you mean the the bible they, we, we read the Bible, and, and it's really good. We love it. Uh, um, t- tell me about other days in the week. No, let's move on from Sunday. What, what else do you do in your week? Well, when I could be asleep, actually forsake some time asleep, and I get up. You, you get up early. Okay, why, why do you do that? To walk the dog? No, I, I do it to, to read my Bible. When do you do that? Well, I try and do it every day. So you get up before you have to, Before your routine of of work and chores dictate, you get up early and deprive yourself of some sleep so as to give more attention to that book that the world laughs at and ridicules. I do, and I really look forward to it. So what else do you do? Well, you know, 
during the week, we try and just open up our home and we, we have folks round from church to spend more time with them. What do you talk about? Well, we, we talk about the Bible. We talk about what God is teaching us and what we're learning. Is there anything else? Well, you know, eventually the week passes by pretty quickly and then Sunday comes around again and I've made sure I've cleared everything to be at church in the morning and in the evening to do it all over again. This is very normal to us. It is entirely strange to a watching world. And you don't do these things unless you're a new covenant believer because you don't have those impulses in your heart. It is not natural for somebody to want to be in this book. That is supernatural. It's not natural for people to want to give up a day of rest so as to serve one another in the local church. That is an out-of-this-world inclination that is functioning in your hearts. It's not natural to deny yourself for the benefit of others that they might see more of the truth in your life and through his word. That is something that God has put in your heart. It's a new covenant impulse. And that is the peculiar nature, and it is at the same time the wonderful nature of being a new covenant believer. How so? I know that many of you come on a Sunday morning feeling very much your inadequacies as a Christian. Many of you will come and perhaps you're embarrassed that the last time you opened this book was the previous Sunday. For many of you, you feel very inadequate when you hear folks talk about their prayer life and that you know for you you have prayed this week just when other people have been present at mealtime. I know that some will come here this week feeling inadequate as a Christian because you're not blessing other people in the way that Christians are sent to bless others. You're not opening up your home for hospitality. You're not serving others throughout the week and you feel that inadequacy. And I rejoice that you have such feelings because they are evidence that you are a new covenant believer. Someone who's not part of the new covenant doesn't feel any sense of having failed this week. They're very at home with their lack of Bible reading. They're very at home with their lack of prayer. They're very at home with their selfishness. It's the believer, the Christian that arrives and says, my Bible reading's not where I want it to be. And I say, praise God, he's doing something in your heart. Can you see how you've got a desire to honor him? Now, it's not where it ought to be. I agree. And I want to help you. I want to take you by the hand or pair you up with someone else and help you get to a point where you're pursuing God through his word and prayer and you're pursuing fellowship each and every week as a norm for your life. But I praise God that you feel that way. What concerns me is when you don't. The fact that you feel the inadequacy is testimony that God has given you a new heart. When I sit down in a counseling scenario, one of the first things I'll say is I am greatly encouraged that we're sat here today. But you would bring this sin into the light. That you would bring it into the open and to me and that you would seek help acknowledging your life is not where it ought to be as a Christian, that is a great encouragement to me. My fear is when the sin gets hidden, tucked away, 
Now I'm probing what's going on on a heart level that you would think that that's okay. But when you bring it into the light, I agree, things aren't where they ought to be. But there is something going on in your heart that is evidence that the new covenant is a reality for you. That is the wonderful thing about the peculiar nature of this covenant. The wonderful thing about the reality of the new covenant is that each and every time you feel an impulse in your heart towards God's word, towards God himself, towards believers in Christ, that is a little signal in your life that one day you will be part of a great congregation worshipping Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. The inclinations that God has given you that seem so everyday for Christians come from a different world and they indicate to you that one day you will be with Christ worshipping in the new heavens and the new earth. You are but the first fruits of the work that Christ is doing to make all things new. And for that reason, we should worship Christ. Pray with me to close. Father, we praise you this morning for the glory of the new covenant. We see, as Matthew quotes Jeremiah, the desperate reality of people in spiritual exile. It was true of those in Jeremiah's day. It was true of those in Jesus' day. It is true of people today, lost and estranged from you. And we praise you that the fulfillment of this scripture doesn't rest at verse 15 of chapter 31 of Jeremiah. That's not the final resting point. But immediately goes on to speak of hope, of a future that you have for your people Israel. And that hope is made plain as you speak about a new covenant. And we gather today in awe of your grace towards us. Those words originally spoken to Israel, and yet you have been gracious to us so as to bring us in now to be part of the new covenant. It is true for us today that we are new covenant believers. And that means you have given us new hearts Heart surgery has taken place as you've saved us. We're not the people that we once were. We have new hearts. And though we still sin and though our lives may not be where they ought to be, there are inclinations in our hearts. There are pulses within our hearts that are not normal, that are not of this world. They are inclinations towards you and towards your word. And Father, I pray that this morning you would give us clarity to see the significance of those inclinations. Though our lives are not where they ought to be, the inclinations testify to your work in our lives. They testify that we are indeed a new creation. And they testify that on the final day we will be with Christ, enjoying the new heavens and the new earth as new covenant believers. We commit ourselves, our thinking, the meditations of our hearts to you and ask that this would be true for us as we go about our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Christ is the fulfillment of the new covenant. You may not think of yourself as having been, quote, transformed by the power of the new covenant, but this does not take away from the blessing we enjoy in Christ. 
It was he of whom Old Testament prophets had prophesied centuries earlier, the coming one who would release us from bondage for all time, the true and better Moses. If you're not yet a Christian, open your heart to a victorious life that ends only when you stand with him in glory. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If you don't have a home church, you're invited to come worship with us this Sunday at 10.30 a.m. The church is located at 200 West Bethany Court in Thousand Oaks. Come Monday, we're into part nine in our current series, Christ, the Center of All History. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening. Hope you have a great weekend. We'll see you back here Monday for Timeless Truth Today.